0: Understanding current events in the light of Bible prophecy is quite a subject because we have the news events and the circumstances that are happening in our world today are ever-changing. You wouldn't always note that. It seems like some of the newscasters get on a particular hobby horse and they ride that one all the way day after day and week after week. And so we've heard that, been there. No sense enduring the commercial breaks uh, involved in it. But we have certainly a need to understand what is going on. And the motivation for that is that we might better know what God would have us to be doing and certainly what our response ought to be when there is a conflict with what we are finding uh, in our government or in our society or in maybe even in our churches that we might be able to understand that. We've seen in our study that there are no specific signs that are given to reveal to us the date the rapture of the church. Only that, as you have heard me repeatedly say, the next great major event in Bible prophecy is the rapture of the church. We have looked at a variety of situations and circumstances uh, and uh, identifications that we might be able to uh, be in a better position to evaluate where we are and what God is about, and how He would like for us to be involved in that. As we look at the circumstances, I have to join with Isaiah, the prophet, when he cried out, prepare ye the way for the coming of the Lord. His cry was first for the first advent, and of course our cry is for the rapture of the church, and then the setting forth of the the calendar for the tribulation and the final second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Isaiah shouted out, Prepare ye the way for the coming of the Lord, it was 800 years (laughs) before the Lord came in that first advent. And so what I determined uh, this week is, that I'm not waiting 800 years. But as soon as my work is finished, I'm out of here. And I'll come back with him for the rest of you all if you're still here. If it's another 800 years, I have some doubts that you might be here, but be there, of course, with us as well. So I'm... When I finish my work, I'm going to go up there now that's not a determination on my part that's a determination on god's part that's what God has revealed. the various uh, individuals who have been uh, who have been saved by God's grace and have been uh, equipped to work in God's body in Christ's body, the church, each one of us then have that understanding that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. But when we look at the events that are occurring, we are encouraged that surely it can't be too long. Concerning the second advent, the events of the tribulation move into uh, a, a position as soon as the church is raptured then we know that the calendar is started and it's only going to be seven years. What we do notice, though, is three and a half years into the tribulational period, God's servants are told to get out of Jerusalem, to flee to Edom and uh, Moab and Ammon that they are, God said, I prepared a place for you there. He's already done that, made provision for that. And so after they have evangelized for three and a half years, they're told to get out of town. And God will hide them. Now, Edom and Moab are, and Ammon are all part of modern day Jordan. It was interesting when that Treaty was signed with between Jordan and Israel. Though Israel is there in still unbelief, uh, it's not the restoration uh, that is going to occur, but it's the stage being prepped for the events of the tribulation to come. But because the persecution is going to get so severe, At the end of that three and a half years, when they start into the last three and a half years, then God tells them to retreat. The 144,000 evangelists are relieved of their duty. They are to go down to Jordan. And God is going to hide them there and provide for them there. And He's going to bring two fantastic evangelists on the earth. They are returning for a second engagement. That is Elijah, the prophet of God, and Moses. All, both of those are going to come back and they're going to evangelize. They're going to be given uh, an armor and protection that they can't be harmed during the three and a half years that they are to minister. And God lays all that out and explains that. But as you study the word of God, you will not find a place of retreat for church-age believers. There's no such command or provision for us to flee before the rapture. As a matter of fact, we are encouraged that as we see the rapture coming, the closer we get to that, the more we are to encourage one another to assemble together, to exhort one another, and do that, more often as we see the day approaching. So there's no retreat for us, but rather an intensification of our service and our commitment and our dedication to God. We sang this morning that hymn that was actually written a hundred years before I was born. It was written in 18 thirty seven and I was born in nineteen thirty seven. But is written by Elizabeth K. Mills and it's titled We'll work till Jesus comes. She wrote, O land of rest for thee I sigh, when will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home. No tranquil joys on earth I know, no peaceful sheltering dome. This world's a wilderness of woe. This world is not my home. To Jesus Christ I fled for rest. He bade me cease to roam and lean for comfort on His breast till He conduct me home. I sought at once my Savior's side. No more my steps shall roam. With Him I'll break death's chilling tide and reach my heavenly home. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. But what is that work? What is the particular work that God has for you on a daily basis and throughout your lifetime as a general life of service to Him? What has He designed for you and how can you best fulfill that? Well, you won't find the answer to that question in most mainline churches today. The Laodicean Church has bought into the humanistic approach of the Luzanne Conferences that was echoed even by the late Billy Graham. Billy Graham was asked the question, What are we to do while we wait for the coming of Christ? And that great evangelist, probably the greatest evangelist certainly of my lifetime, but far beyond that, this was the answer that he gave to that question. While waiting for the return of Jesus, Christians should focus their time on helping the needy to alleviate the world suffering. End of statement. Well, he was a tremendous evangelist. I had the opportunity of meeting him personally. As a matter of fact, I served as... When I was 13 years old, I served as his page at the Southern Baptist Convention in San Francisco. And certainly God blessed his ministry but again, he was an evangelist. God hasn't appointed all of us to be evangelists. And he had not appointed ba- evangelists to be pastor teachers. There is a vast difference in the structuring of God's ministry through born-again Christians that we need to understand. Billy Graham's response is the very reason that we have Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. This is what Paul wrote. Now he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. And he that descended is the same also that ascendeth up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And here it is, and he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Timothy had both the gifting and the calling to equip him to be an effective pastor-teacher. And Paul told Timothy, in addition to your role as pastor-teacher, do the work of an evangelist. But I have not found anywhere in the Scripture where an evangelist was ever told to do the work of a pastor-teacher. Evangelism is where it all began. That's the starting point. But certainly, it's not supposed to stop there. Without the role of the pastor teacher, there would be no equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. We're all gifted in some specific way so that we can properly represent Christ here on the earth. And all believers in the church age are gifted and need then to be equipped so they can do the work of ministry. So we are to serve as sojourners, performing the ministry that our spiritual gift dictates. Our work is actually defined by our spiritual gifting, and for each one of us, our gifts are specialized To us individually. The degree of the gift, the actual aspects of the gift. There are only nine that are operative throughout the church age, but they vary so extensively in the structure and the combination of those gifts so that God has particularly designed each of us for a specific service and along with that a geographical location and the other aspects that relate to our lives as well there are those who have spiritual gifts that enable them to assist those that are needy and those that are suffering and those that need help with food and those things but That's only one area of ministry that the Lord has established for the church. We are here to do the work of the one that sent Christ. In John chapter 9 verse 4, in our King James text it says, Jesus said, uh, I am to do the works of him that sent me. But the older manuscripts before the 10th century say we are to do the works of the one that sent Christ. I had a pitiful experience this week when I did a Google search to see what others believed we are supposed to be doing while we are waiting for The Return of Christ at the Rapture of the Church. And most of the websites agreed with Billy Graham. But the strongest emphasis was on waiting. To wait. Well, our focus is not to be on the waiting. We could wait better there (laughs) than we can here. But he has a design for us here. And that's why we are still here. Now, explaining what our work is to do uh, is to be is enabled by our understanding what we are, how we are identified in the Bible. We are identified a variety of ways. We are identified as children of God, and that speaks of our relationship with God. We are identified as the light of the world, and that speaks of our reflection of Christ. We are identified as strangers and pilgrims, sojourners, in other words, and that explains our purpose. We are identified as ambassadors, stewards, servants, slaves, husbandmen, and all of those terms identify our role. We're identified as the body of Christ, and that identifies our function. So before we hasten on to consider the things that are hereafter, you'll note in our study guide we identified that the text for today is found in Revelation 4.1 where John writes, After this I looked, and behold, the door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a voice of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. If we go back to the first chapter, we find that there was a threefold aspect of the revelation. John was told of the things that had occurred, He was told of things that were occurring, and then he was told of things that were going to happen hereafter. The things that had occurred were prior to the church age. The things that are occurring, as was revealed to John, was in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that identify the panoramic view prophetically of the history of the church. Those are the things that John was involved in then. And then he said, now when all that's done, this is what's going to take place hereafter. And we move from the scene in heaven to the stage on the earth where that last drama is going to be played out. So before we hasten on to look at the interesting and exciting and sometimes puzzling things that we find is going to occur through the tribulational period, we need to understand the here and now, why we are here, and what we are be doing now so that we can live out our design. Look with me then at the identity that we have in order to understand the work that we've been assigned until we go to meet Him in death or at the rapture. Our relationship, our reflection, our purpose, our role, our likeness, and our function. First of all, we are children of God. We are children of God by relationship. Adam was created, body, soul, and spirit, but as a result of his sin, he died spiritually. Jesus spoke of our salvation to Nicodemus as a new birth. A harmony of Scripture teaches that we are born into this world, body and soul, but dead spiritually. For that reason, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus said, You must be born again. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews and as Jesus talked with him and explained to him about this new birth, he he didn't understand. And Jesus said, You are the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand this? Because this is basic. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel, not that I said unto you, you must be born again. I acknowledge that there's some debate over what Jesus meant when He said, be born of water. But to understand the accurate uh, translation of that, what that means... You need to hear what Jesus said to explain it. And in the next phrase he said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he identifies the water birth as the physical birth. When we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation We experience a new birth. We experience a birth of the human spirit. We have a human soul. And that's designed for us to be able to relate to human experience. But now we have a human spirit. God is spirit. And those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him neither can He know them because they're spiritually discerned. So we are born a spirit being when we call upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. So as believers in the church age, we are identified as sons of God. Now ladies, understand the word sons is used here because of the Relevance of the application of s- certain gifting and and provisions that went only to the son, in the inheritance and in the adoption and the uh, being on the family account and all of that that was associated in that culture. It was through the son. The women were not left out because they were married to a son, and they shared in those benefits, making the one to whom they were married complete and the two forming that union that God originally designed. So, not only are we identified as children, and that term, there are three different words for children in the Greek text uh, that uh, the Apostle John uses in his epistle, but the emphasis is upon the huias, the sons, in order that we might understand the rights and privileges and benefits that are ours regardless of whether we be male or female in the flesh. We have that identity with Him in the Spirit. So we are identified as sons of God. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. As a result of our spiritual birth, Not only are we a member of the family of God, but we are born into the kingdom of God. And so we are children of God, but citizens of the kingdom of God as well. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're children of God born into the kingdom of God. Secondly, we are the light of the world. And while being children of God identifies our relationship, our kinship with God, now we discover how we can reflect Christ and God in our life. We need to note that Christians are not the source of, of light. But we are designed to reflect the light that's in us. Christ is the light. And we are simply reflectors of that light. The old kerosene lamp is a classic example of that process. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but he shall have the light of life john 8:12 jesus said as long as i am in the world i am the light of the world john chapter 9 verse 5 jesus said ye are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid matthew 5:14 and then he added Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The Bible teaches that God is light. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Nothing is incidental in the Bible. Every word, every phrase has a purpose and a mission. And when it says God is light, it does not mean that light is God, but identifies that God is light. Now, light is comprised of three elements. Actinic, Luminiferous, and Calorific. Without any of those three, we do not have light. Actinic, Luminiferous, and Calorific. The Godhead is comprised of three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Actinic is a property of light. That cannot be seen and cannot be felt, and yet it can be measured. It becomes a good representation of uh, our Heavenly Father. We are told in John chapter 1 verse 18 and in John chapter 6 verse 46, no man hath seen the Father. Luminiferous, is a property of light that can be both seen and felt. And becomes a good representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, who can both be seen and be felt, according to John twenty twenty seven. Calorific is an element of light that cannot be seen, but it can be felt and its effect can be seen and becomes an exact presentation of the Holy Spirit that can be seen, but or cannot be seen but can be felt. The Holy Spirit is represented then by the calorific. So when the Bible says God is light, it's just not incidental. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit form the being of God. And we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three being one. He said, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he turns around and says, you are the light of the world. And then he explains that as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Well, he is in the world today through us. He indwells us. And therefore, we are not the source of light, but He is the source of light. The lamp is a classic example of what we're talking about as we being the light of the world. The Bible refers to the church as being the lampstand and to you and I as believers as being the lamp. The base of this lamp is designed with a specific intent and that is to hold the oil. It, for sake of our illustration, represents our physical bodies. The bases come in various sizes, shapes, and colors. various designs like the human bodies do. You could use the base of that lamp for a variety of things. I even on one occasion when the children were little and got a a goldfish, I filled it with water and put a goldfish in it. I've seen them turned into uh, terranium. What's the word? There you go. See, you've seen it too then. (laughs) I've seen that done in the physical bowl. But it's designed... For a purpose. And that purpose. Is to hold the oil. And your body and my bodies. Are designed to be the temple. Of God. And we are to be filled. With. The Holy Spirit. The oil then. Throughout the Old Testament. And the New Testament. Oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. And so it. Forms this illustration well. The burner of the lamp is made of brass. It has a control element to it. And it holds the wick. The wick is saturated in the oil. The wick represents our saturation. By the Holy Spirit. See, there's nothing incidental in the Word of God. The Bible says be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean to fill it to the rim in that sense. The word fill, play ruse, they mean saturated to the point of control. It's only when the wick is saturated in the oil that the light is controlled. And there's any radiance of that. The brass, brass is always a symbol of judgment throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Brass is a symbol of judgment. The, the burner holds the fire, which is the light. Jesus was judged for your sins and my sins, hence the brass representation. His judgment Provides the means whereby we can be saved. He was judged on our behalf. The burner has a control on it that is used to determine the saturation of the wick. You and I have free will. And with that free will, we make choices daily that limit or allow the control of the Spirit, the saturation in our life, to radiate the life that is Christ Jesus. So, the light is fire, and He was judged on our behalf, and we make judgments concerning our yieldness, our saturation by the Spirit. And then the chimney. The chimney represents... Your behavior and my behavior, we're all different. We have our own personal behavior. And so there's various shapes and designs to the chimney. But the basic thing of the chimney is it's designed to be a reflector. See, the light is small. But when we put the chimney, the reflector on it, it magnifies that light. Christ lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, had a victorious resurrection, had a glorious ascension, is presently in a position of intercession for us before the Father. And He lives in us and our actions, our behavior reflect Him. Sometimes it's a good reflection. (laughs) Sometimes it's a magnification. Sometimes it's all sooted up and dirty and does not reflect the light that He is. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, He is in us. Now we are the light of the world, but our reflection of Him varies from person to person. And unfortunately, from time to time in our own lives. So we are to let our light so shine before men that they might see what? Our good works. That they might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We are to be light. Third, we are strangers... Pilgrims, sojourners. That identifies our purpose. Our purpose here on earth after salvation is to do the king's business. We've established citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But we're living here on the earth as sojourners, which means, as we've studied a number of times, We are foreigners, not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals in order to do business for our king. Now, we've explored that role in this series of messages and reviewed it a number of times. You might go back to Lesson 6, and oh, by the way, when I went through Lesson 6 and then moved down to Lesson 5 this week, recording it, I discovered, uh, boy, there was a lot of... (laughs) Repetition and overlap. But of course, you know my motto is Repetition Brings Retention. And so, uh, either Lesson 5 or Lesson 6 on the website and you'll be able to review this role as sojourners. The first Christian song that I memorized as a child was the song that we sing The King's Business. We're going to close with that song this morning the Lord willing the reason that was the first song I memorized was because I was in the boys organization in the Southern Baptist Church called Royal Ambassadors and it was part of their their process of earning your grades your, your different positions from page to squire to knight to ambassador and uh we were required to memorize the song. I am a stranger here within a foreign land. My home is far away upon a golden strand. Ambassadors to be of realms beyond the sea, I'm here on business for my king. This is the king's command that all men everywhere repent and turn away from sin's seductive snare, that all who will obey with him shall reign for a, and that's my business for my king. My home is brighter far than Sharon's rosy plain, eternal life and joy throughout its vast domain. My sovereign bids me tell how mortals there may dwell, that's my business for my king. This is the message that I bring, a message angels vain would sing. Oh, be ye reconciled, thus saith my Lord and King. Oh, be ye reconciled to God. Our business for the king as sojourners is described by our roles. Now, our roles are identified as ambassadors stewards, servants, bond slaves, husbandmen, or field laborers. We are ambassadors, stewards, servants, slaves, husbandmen. That explains our role. As ambassadors, we represent Jesus Christ as King here on earth. As stewards, we are appointed to manage his business affairs. As servants, we are to minister to the needs that he assigns us. As bond slaves, we choose to be submissive to him and submit to his design for us. As husbandmen, we are field laborers, who, by the way, are co-laborers with Christ, who work in the field to plant, To water, to harvest crops. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 6, says, and Paul is writing, he said, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth, and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are laborers together with God. We are likened unto branches, unto husbandry, and unto a building. We are likened to branches of the true vine, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Here. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word of God, which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, oh, by the way, that church, the vine, needs to note they're the branches, not the vine. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he's cast out. As a branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Wherein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is the commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I have commanded you. Henceforth I call you not servants, For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it. These things I command you that you love one another. We are likened unto branches of the vine. <clears throat> we are also likened unto a husbandry. Now, we, one of our identities is we are husbandmen. But this likeness is that we are husbandry. A husbandry is a cultivated field. So not only are we cultivators in the field, we are, in God's eyes, and in God's view, and in God's plan, a cultivated field. The parable of the sower, we studied a few weeks ago. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23, we have an explanation that Christ gave to the disciples of what the parable of the sower meant. He said, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower when one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then come up the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received the seed by the wayside. But he that receiveth the seed in stony places is the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy he receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulations and persecutions arise because of the word, and by and by he is offended. He also that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receiveth the seed and ground Good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. I decided it wouldn't be a good idea to plot this living room as a field where there was stony ground and whatnot. I just leave that between you and God. So we are likened Unto branches of the true vine, we are likened to a cultivated field. And then he says we're likened unto the stones of a building. You are God's building. Now we've stressed in our study that Peter said we're strangers and pilgrims, that we're sojourners, foreigners not living in their own country, but living alongside the locals in order to do the king's business. Now, don't confuse that with Paul's statement in Ephesians two nineteen through 22 in which he says, "...now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets." Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul's talking about our citizenship being in heaven, and we're no longer strangers, your pilgrims, your sojourners in the kingdom of God. Peter talks about here on earth, we are strangers now. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are likened to a building. And in the church age, we are identified as the temple of God. Our bodies are identified as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, And you are not your own. We're building. Finally, by the way, Paul makes that statement, finally, about halfway through his epistles. (laughs) Finally, we are the body of Christ. That describes our function. So, we've seen that our... By the way, you see, to be continued, (laughs) we need a little more time so that we can study what our function is. And so we will do that next time, Lord willing. But we've seen that our relationship with God is that of sons of God and citizens of the kingdom. That's our relationship. We've seen that we are to reflect Christ as the light of the world. That is our reflection. We have seen that our purpose is to live as sojourners. We've seen that our roles are compared to that of ambassadors, stewards, servants, slaves, husbandmen, and field laborers. We've seen that our likeness is comparable to branches from the vine, comparable to a cultivated field and to a building, the temple of God. Now we come to the function of sojourners. To understand what our specific function is, We and how we are to live out our appointed time as sojourners, we must understand spiritual gifting because God's gifting defines our individual and personal work. We are the body of Christ and members in particular. And what God has called us to do, He's provided the resources and the ability for us to do those things effectively. So although we've studied spiritual gifts and we've provided some guidelines to help you define your gifts in our study next week, we're going to take a little different approach as far as the application and use of our gifts. For one thing, we do not function in a structured church, meaning that we do not have, at this time, the organizational structure to help channel your specific gifts. Because the gifts are designed to structure a functioning representation of the body of Christ, a local church. So, in our situation here, we're going to need to look at the application of spiritual gifting and things as it relates to here. And when, if the Lord would provide that we should be organized into a church at some later time, then we can channel those things more specifically. But we need to understand how they can be channeled now. In our situation, where we are. And where you are and what you can be doing in this sojourn that we have. So, in these days of our sojourn here upon the earth. We need to commit ourselves to being slaves, husbandmen, sojourners, stewards, and ambassadors for Christ. And other words, we need to be about the King's business. But of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Turn with me in your hymnals to hymn number 616. And join with me as we are reminded of the king's business.